That's fine. Alrighty, we are oh, we are underway. Let's uh, do this thing. Here we go. And we do the thing. Cool. All right, we're underway. Challenges of being a modern man. This could be an interesting one, probably part of a series. And um, Chris and anybody else who joins the call, please jump in and comment and uh, bring up any points you like as we go on. I basically listed what, you know, I did a, a whole bunch of research before creating this one where I went and looked at the, the top problems faced by men uh, and saw the sort of opinions of a lot of people as well as comparing it to scientific fact. And then I ran it past you guys in the group and said, you know, which of these do you want to focus on? So we're focusing on three today. We're going to be looking at the attack on masculinity. We're going to be looking at uh, values and ethics. What was the third one? Uh, it's completely escaped my mind, but we'll get to it as we continue. So we'll go through what I've identified both in my work and through the kind of research I did before this as being the main problems that men face. But then I want to hear from you guys uh, what's missing from this and also how what is here affects you personally. And we'll talk through it. And I really want this to be solution focused. This is not a session on bitching about how hard it is to be a man. This is very much a session on acknowledging how hard it is to be a man and then asking what are we going to do about it. So let us continue. Cool. So <clears throat> the first and I think probably the primary issue that came up is confusion around masculinity and some shame around it, which we'll look at soon, and confusion around what it means to be a man. Um, and we're going to start with that. So let's start with where we're getting our information about being a man from. The unrealistic stereotypes that we're exposed to um, on a daily basis. Now, I remember when I was younger, it was very much a sports-related model. Uh, I think that's changing in more modern times, but... I remember in, in high school, I've got this clear image in my head of some guys from the first 15 rugby team walking past the window while I was in class. They're clearly not in class, and yet I saw a teacher, saw a teacher walk right past them and leave them to walk around the school, basically wagging a class. And I just watched basically these sporting heroes be worshipped by the school, by teachers, and to get special treatment. And so I, from a very early age, I was exposed to uh, situations like this that told me that the athletic, physically strong and able sporting heroes were the representation of a man that's approved of by society. And so being a person who, I mean, I played a bit of sports and I was average at it. I did it mainly to fit in. But I was a creative type, you might say. 
even though I hate that word, but I liked drawing and I liked music and I liked all these other things. And none of those things were in the sporting category. And so I kind of felt like I was born at a disadvantage. I've always had a, an insecurity about being weak or soft as a man. And I, I remember, I mean, I, sometimes I wonder why I'm into heavy metal. It, it happens to be the hardest type of music. So it's the kind of strongest, most masculine type of music there is. And I wonder if I was driven to that so that my love of music was not perceived as weak. Perhaps if I had not had shame around being perceived as unsporting or weak, I may have been into a different type of music. We'll never know. But this idea that, you know, athleticism, it's kind of hunter, is a representation of a real man. And everything else is a kind of weaker, softer, unformed version of that. We also get the real standard macho alpha male. This is, seems to be dying off, I think, more so these days. But when I was younger, it was a big deal. You know, we're talking diehard. Uh, the guy who kills everybody and is just bulging with muscles and dominant and cavemanish. And anything, again, like the sports model, anything underneath that was seen as weaker uh, less valuable somehow. It depends what school you went to, but in my school, intelligence in a man was seen as a weakness, academic intelligence. I was quite academically talented um, through no fault of my own. It was just uh, genetics. I did well at school and I sucked at other things like fixing a car. But being in the top class didn't earn me any social points. You know, being in the brainy class is something I had to play down all the time. I had to be self-deprecating about it. Uh, I felt like I had to kind of act as if it had been forced upon me. Whereas guys who are in the bottom of the class struggling through school, but they were good with cars and uh, they were good at fighting and they were good with women. Those were the guys who were worshipped, you know. Now, it's going to be different everywhere you go, but there'll be some stereotype in your area during your upbringing of what a man should be and you would have found at least some aspects of that stereotype unrealistic for yourself either unattainable like you can't all be the best at sports or just fake like pretending to be interested in sports when you really don't when you'd rather be playing you know dungeons and dragons or something right and then I can't remember exactly when this took place. It was kind of during my childhood, but there was a shift which went completely 180. And that is suddenly we're being told to be a sensitive guy. And there was a big overlap here. We'd often get this, these mixed messages, which I'll talk about in a second, in the same day. You know, the, we'd be told to be the sporting hero and then you change channel and there's someone telling you to be more in touch with your feelings and more caring and sensitive. There's this whole men's movement that happened. Guys were going out into the forest. So it still happens these days. Some groups do it where they get in touch with their feelings and they hug each other and they, they're encouraged to cry and, you know, they share how their father didn't hug them. And it's kind of very sensitive, new agey type practices. I'm not saying they're wrong or bad. But they're completely at odds with the other representation, which is the hard, stoic, macho man. 
And so we're getting this mixed message, like if you're a hard macho man, you're too hard and aggressive. Uh, you need to be more sensitive. And of course, if you're too sensitive, then you're weak and soft. And the, the kind of stage was set for all the stereotypes about what it means to be a man to be unrealistic, leaving most men who aren't naturally falling into one of these categories authentically uh, to feel like they're floating around. And I think in particular, when it comes to my clients and my own experience as a nice guy and the kind of Brojo community in general, the James Bond model. Now, some people are into James Bond, some people aren't, but we're almost all affected by it because most of our fathers were really into James Bond. You know, that was like the most popular male role model for our fathers, for, for the guys who grew up in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Bond was the man. And what's interesting about James Bond is that he is almost entirely unrepresentative <clears throat> of someone with a healthy psychology. We see him driving the fast cars and killing all the bad guys and getting all the women, and we think, man, it'd be awesome to be him. And we see he's totally unfazed by anything that goes wrong. He's totally unfazed by things not going his way. He just charms his way through them and they eventually come to be going his way again. He's this bad boy that everyone loves. This kind of irony or this, uh, what would you call it? Uh, kind of lovable bad boy, an oxymoron. He's going around causing all sorts of damage and everyone approves of him. And he's unfeeling. And that was the key stereotype that came out of James Bond is he's unemotional. He doesn't get emotionally attached to the woman that he's sleeping with. He doesn't feel any regret or remorse about the people he kills or the damage he does. He's just charming and um, basically kind of glib throughout the whole thing. And what I came to realize later in my career as a coach was that James Bond is actually a pretty perfect representation of a psychopath. He, you know, I've studied psychopaths quite extensively and worked with many of them throughout my career in corrections. And he's a kind of archetype. Most psychopaths don't go around, you know, um, saving the world, but some of them do. And almost certainly spies working for the CIA or the um, what is it M three or whatever it's called in the um, in the United Kingdom, you know, psychopathy would serve you well in that role to be unfeeling, to be calm under pressure, um, to be able to make quick, devastating decisions without hesitation. But it's very unrealistic. Only about one percent of the population is naturally or genuinely psychopathic, and even smaller fraction of them would be what you call pure psychopaths, like James Bond. And yet we had a whole generation of fathers trying to emulate him or at least in their minds fantasizing about being him and then raising their children as such. And we have a lot of fathers that told us to not cry and to do certain activities that were more macho and we didn't know where they were getting this from. Well, maybe James Bond comes from somewhere else, but almost certainly our fathers were getting it from models like James Bond. We were being punished for not being like James Bond when we were like five-year-old little boys. If we fell down and hurt our knee and cried, some part of our father's mind would go, that's not James Bond, and we'd be punished for it. 
this kind of insecurity that our fathers had around feelings. So this is some of the ideas that came to my mind about the unrealistic stereotypes that men face. And uh, so we've got a few more people joining us. No, it's just kind of cutting in and out. That's fine. So let's see what else comes up here. <clears throat> this one was uh, quite specifically from my childhood, and it depends almost certainly on where you come from. But if you're in your late 20s, 30s, or 40s onwards, uh, almost certainly no matter where you're raised in the world, homophobia would have been strong this idea of being seen as weak, emotional, or intimate as a man was linked with actually being sexually attracted to other men. And that was, of course, linked with homophobia. So, I mean, little boys, their number one insult is to call each other gay, isn't it? I mean, I can only imagine how horrific this is to actually be gay as a child in this environment, to be the kind of seen as a wolf in sheep's clothing trying to fit in knowing that if you're outed in this group the you know the response will be merciless but actually this this idea that you know first we have this kind of religious concept that's come throughout the ages of homosexuality being wrong and that's about the only reason why we think it's wrong and um, plenty of other animals engage in it there's there's no correlation to harm with homo homosexual behavior. But we came to use it as a kind of banner where to describe feminine traits, to describe things like being emotionally unstable, to being intimate or even passionate. Um, and of course, the sexuality thing was actually kind of like a, a minor side point when you called someone gay or you called someone a faggot or anything like that, you didn't actually, you weren't really talking about their sexuality. You're talking about their masculinity, you know? And so we became kind of confused about this. And as we grew up, we came to associate homosexuality as this kind of threat that if I am seen as one, um, I have kind of lost my status as a man somehow. And so I think that was a huge fact. I'm not really exactly sure how this played a role. I just know it was huge in my own childhood and from the many dozens of clients that I've had came up a lot for them as well. Uh, let me just see something here. Some chats come up here. Uh, okay. So Christian Wi-Fi, no problem. Okay. So moving on. Let's get to the heart of the matter, which I think is one of the most difficult current issues around being a man. This term called toxic masculinity, it's one of my least favorite terms on the planet, and it's been prolific over the last, well, it's not very long, but over the last couple of years, Max, you know, this wasn't a word, uh, it wasn't a term, I should say, a couple of years ago. And now a day doesn't go by without someone in the media referencing it. It also seems to be a relatively undefined term. It's used uh, with a broad brush to cover any form of behavior by a man that's deemed harmful. 
So this idea that masculinity itself is a causal factor in harmful behavior uh, has led to a lot of men developing huge amounts of shame around it. And this really took off, at least from my perspective, it seemed to have taken off with the Me Too movement. Men responded quite negatively to the Me Too movement, and I believe it's for valid reasons. Because Me Too quickly became You Too. And what I mean by that is Me Too started, you know, I remember when I woke up one day and started seeing these posts on Facebook about Me Too. I was reading it and I was kind of saying, you know, good on you girls for, you know, showing how prolific abuse and, and harassment and, and rape is because it's, it's way underreported and it's about time we made this a normal conversation to have. But quickly, I, it was really quickly, it started becoming, this is because of men, which was like, whoa. And especially from my point of view, because... I've worked in the Department of Corrections. I know the scientific truths about crime. I know the statistics. I know, for example, that 50% of crime, roughly, is committed by only 5% of the criminal population. And one thing to sort of keep in mind with things like rape and murder and, and sexual harassment these crimes are committed by a very small percentage of the male population. They just do it a lot. So it might only be one guy in 50 who actively abuses and harasses women, but he'll do it to almost every woman he meets. And so women get this impression that a lot of guys are doing it rather than the accurate impression, which is a few guys are doing it a lot. And you know, 90 plus percent of men out there going, fuck, I've never laid a hand on a woman. Why am I getting abused for this? And eventually the message came out, no, this is a masculinity issue. Not this is a small percentage of criminals issue, but this is an entire gender is flawed. I mean, the stage had already long ago been set for men to be scared of being sexual and ashamed, but this latest Me Too movement has driven it to the very edge because we've actually seen people be taken down from this. We've seen some of our most worshipped heroes fall um, from sexual abuse allegations. And when they started to go from very obvious cases like Weinstein and Bill Cosby down to much more questionable cases like um, Aziz, whatever his name is, who basically just had a bad date and then got accused of being a rapist. You know, we started to think, Jesus, anybody can fall. This is kind of like a blanket thing to hunt down men. Basically, any shady woman can bring down a man with sexual abuse claims now. So we started getting this message, don't be aggressive or direct or sexual. We must wait for permission. There are some feminist movements out there that say any form of even like talking to a woman is abuse. You must wait to be spoken to first, like some sort of slave mentality. We're already a generation of nice guys raised with fucked up views around masculinity. We've already got that green light syndrome where we're waiting for permission, and that's been amplified over the last couple of years. And we see something in the media which is goes kind of uncommented on a lot of the time, which is masculinity, which is just a mask for saying men, is blamed for a lot of societal issues, particularly crime. 
and yet it would be an absolute disaster if someone in, in mainstream media was to blame femininity or females for some societal problem. They would be seen as sexist, but men, especially white men, it's like open season. You know, you can say anything you want about a man in the media and you'll be more supported than you will be derided. And particularly this idea that this oversimplification of complex societal issues like crime and poverty, just being blamed on men, and, and this idea that masculinity is a cause of problems. Uh, also undermining the fact that masculinity is often the solution to many problems. So we're pushed to be more feminine, which is quite unnatural for many guys. And the guys who are naturally feminine finally feel like they've found their place in the world and good for them. Um, but for guys who are not naturally feminine, uh, masculinity is being suppressed and punished or it appears to be that way. And because we're not naturally feminine, what we end up being is more passive. We don't have this kind of natural empathy and caring. We don't want to be a nurse or whatever. Um, so we do this kind of half-assed version of it, which is we just do nothing. We sit around waiting for permission, waiting to be told what's right and wrong, which we'll get into soon. So in general, what we're getting is a lot of mixed messaging. Uh, you know, we are the generation that grew up without consistent or strong role models. You know, a few hundred years ago and onwards, the the messaging about what it meant to be a man was very clear and it was directly expressed and you were trained in it. You can even see this today in certain isolated tribes and in the, the rainforests in Africa where there's actually man training. You hit the age of 13, there's a ceremony where you're taken away from your mother. It's this big dramatic act to kind of symbolize that the apron strings are being cut. And then you go away and you learn the man skills. You learn how to hunt, you learn how to lead. You learn how to be a father and uh, quite often you don't come back to the village until you've learned these basics and can, you know, pass some sort of test to become a man. Now I have no doubt there's problems with this process. You know, what, what about the feminine guys and the guys are naturally feminine? Are they left behind or are they forced into false macho masculinity? But the key thing that I'm getting from this is that we're missing any form of support around what it means to be a man. And we have to kind of watch and hopefully gain some information just from observing. And what are we watching? The media, right? We're watching news media, we're watching movies, we're watching social media. And these days it's all pretty strongly anti-male. There's a huge men suck movement being disguised as many other things or being hidden within things. For example, a lot of feminism is just about recognizing that women are humans too and recognizing that in many places around the world they're treated as less than human. But hidden within the feminism community is the anti-male movement. Hidden within the Me Too movement is the attack on males. So there's these kind of shields, these movements that are pro-women and within that are hiding these anti-male aggressors. And it seeps through into the media. We see it in all our movies and everything. This kind of, it's wrong to be masculine. But at the same time, we're also being pressured to be masculine and macho and strong. So we're told we've got to be strong, but we can't be aggressive. We must be a provider, 
but we can't be an oppressor. We can't lead too strongly. You know, we, we're supposed to lead, but we can't control. We're supposed to be sensitive, but you're not allowed to be a pussy. You're supposed to be a bad boy, but you got to treat people nicely. So you got to be everything all the time without fail and somehow never contradict yourself all the while being authentic. Impossible, isn't it? It's impossible. So a boy being raised to go, look, just go out there in the world and listen to what everyone says and use that as a model to figure out what it means to be a man is just going to be left a confused mess. Isn't it? Let's have a look at some of the internal problems that this leads to in us men. We're in a rock versus hard place situation. No matter where we go, we get it wrong. You know, we've got deep shame around masculinity and traits when we feel strong sexual urges, we instantly feel shame. When we feel like uh, confronting someone, we instantly feel a pullback in our mind, a hesitation. We're constantly pounded by the not good enough story, this idea that like, I can't win no matter what I do, it's the wrong thing to do. Everything I've ever wanted to do, I see some role model getting punished for doing it. And masculinity becomes synonymous with male, which isn't quite accurate. You know, you can be masculine and feminine as a male. We all are in some aspects. And you can be a strongly feminine male. And you can be a strongly masculine woman. You know, but we, we get this attached to gender and then we become shamed of our actual gender. I remember one of the most uh, embarrassing moments I've ever had in witnessing behaviors when, oh, I can't remember his name. He was the leader of the Labour Party in New Zealand some years back, and he said, I'm sorry for being a man. I just remember watching him and just going, oh, you're an embarrassment to men. I can't believe you just said that. I can't believe that you, you just did the most devastating thing you could ever do for boys around the world to apologize publicly just for being a male, something you can't control. You know, we've got, it, so because it's attached to our gender and it's attached to masculinity, it becomes really clear in our sexuality. I mean, combine being a man with masculinity, you're talking about sexuality. And so sexuality becomes fraught with anxiety. There's so many risks involved in being a sexual man. And there's so many risks we have to try and navigate, and they're so dangerous. There seems to be so many um, big consequences to getting this wrong. So we get a lot of sexual shame, everything from sexual performance issues through to... Um, the kind of friend zone, nice guy problem of being unable to express attraction through to not being able to set boundaries because of the kind of masculinity involved. There's all sorts of internal problems that come from the anxiety we have around our sexuality. And any guy who might be a bit bi or gay will feel a huge resistance to exploring this, which could be a source of great pleasure in his life um, because of what we talked about here before. There's so much shame and what it leads to is we're so busy trying to fit into this impossible model of being a man that what we really are is, gets lost. Our integrity gets completely sidelined by our constant risk aversion, by our constant uh, information absorption and our tests and experiments and attempts to fit in. We've got a couple of questions coming up. David Cunliffe, that's who it was. Thank you, Henry. Um, David Cunliffe, yeah, he was the one who said it's wrong to be a man. I think David Cunliffe, you know, oh God, what an awful thing to do. 
Henry says, I also hate it when a girl says, I'm afraid I'm giving you the wrong signal. You know? Yeah, well, we're afraid that we're reading the signals wrong. And, and this is interesting. We're not going to talk about the problems females face. I absolutely 100% believe that men and women suffer equally, just not in the same ways. Um, but we now know that because men are so ashamed around sexuality, that women are becoming hesitant to be women because they get so often misinterpreted, misunderstood, and they break hearts without meaning to because guys simply aren't trained in understanding women and don't know how to read them because they're not uh, engaging in their masculinity, which will teach them all those things. You know, one of the things I learned about masculinity is once it becomes really strong, you don't need to know how to read women because the truth comes out from being direct and honest and bold all the time. Solutions. So with the three issues that I'm raising today, what I've done is I've, I've collected the six core Brojo values and asked myself, how would these values apply to the resolution of the situation? Like I said right at the start of the session, this is not a session about poor us, it's hard to be a man. At least that's not the whole story. Because the second part of the story is, what are we going to do about it? You know, I really absolutely believe that no one is essentially a victim of anything. We just react to things in a painful way. Real things that do exist. But it's our reaction that hurts us. Yes, the media might be anti-male, but it's our reaction to the media that hurts us, not the media itself. So what I've brought up here is my ideas on how the Brojo values can be, uh, be a guiding principle to solving this. First and foremost, responsibility. I mean, we cannot get out of a victim mindset until we take responsibility. If we sit around going, God, it's hard to be a man, we're not moving anywhere with this situation. Rather than going, it's hard to be a man, we need to go, okay, there are some challenges facing us as men that are our job to overcome. And I think the key one here, the one that at least set me free from all of what we've talked about today, each man must create his own version of masculinity. You need to decide for yourself what being a man is. You need to put aside what everyone else's ideas are and design your own. You know, a key moment for me was when I first started doing salsa. It's really interesting to just see how bollocks the, the societal view of masculinity is because if I was in Brazil, or Mexico or Spain, I'd actually be seen as more masculine for dancing salsa. But in New Zealand, I was seen as gay. And this was a critical moment for me. I'd always felt a compulsion to dance. I'd never done it before. I was in my mid to late 20s at this stage. I've always really wanted to do it, but I could just never get over the kind of shaming and uh, accusations of homosexuality that I knew I was going to receive if I explored this. Once I started doing the dancing, I came to realize that it was enhancing my masculinity. I was becoming more responsive uh, to women. I was leading. I felt strong and, and bold. It required me to perform on stage, which took all sorts of courage and other masculine acts. And allowed me to get in touch with connection, with more feminine side of myself, which ironically made me more masculine. And 
what I came to believe is my previous model of what it meant to be masculine did not include dancing, but that was somebody else's model. I realized that my model did now include dancing, at least for me. And it was moments like this where I started to go, okay, I'm going to design being a man for myself. I'm not going to listen to what other people say being a man is. I'm going to figure it out as my own version of some healthy way to live as a man. And if that disagrees with the media or society or whatever, well, they can just all go fuck themselves because I'm going to come up with my own version. And that was probably one of the most helpful things I've ever done in my entire life. Not salsa dancing necessarily, though that did help. But me deciding nobody else knows what I should be as a man, I have to decide for myself. Henry says, what are your thoughts about incels? I think they also feel suppressed by the media. Um, let me come to, I'm going to come back to that question when I finish this section. Um, Cause yeah, there's some interesting thoughts on incels, but actually no, you know what? This is the right place to talk about it because involuntary celibate incels is a group actually uh, started by a woman who wanted to get guys together who felt like, their virginity or their lack of sex life was out of their hands. Um, and they just wanted to get together and basically commiserate and support each other through the pain of being like this. And then uh, she left the group and incels went on a different direction. And uh, some splinter groups broke out and there's some hate groups broke out and eventually it all came to a head when one person identified as an incel um, attempted or successfully murdered a group of women uh, out of rage for not getting laid, essentially. Incels, uh, MGTOW, men going their own way, and other groups of this nature, to me, the absence of responsibility is what they have in common. I mean, the, even the name involuntarily celibate implies that celibacy has been forced upon them. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong. And that's, you know, every attempt they've made to have sex has been denied, perhaps. But the responsibility of what they're going to do about it, that's on them. You know, you can be celibate involuntarily until one day you decide you're going to do it voluntarily. Now, nothing's changed about your celibacy, except you now have responsibility. You know, I was really struggling with women for quite some time in my mid to late 20s. And a lot of that was very much an incel kind of mindset. I was like, ah, if only women would accept me and, uh, you know, I'm at the mercy of women. And then one day I decided, well, what if I decide to swear off women to just stop pursuing them? And I don't mean MGTOW, like give up, but stop pursuing them so I can work on myself. Instead of pursuing sex, something out of my control, I can pursue self-development, which is in my control. And immediately responsibility came into my life. You know, and this is where the incels are at the step before that. They're going, they're still waiting for women to do something for them rather than going, you know what? Um, it's time for me to do something for myself. So we get a lot of groups like this in the manosphere in the male world that say, poor us, you know, we've been hard done by, by women. And now we have to sit and wait for women to change. And that's an absence of responsibility. It's also not the same as saying, well, now we have to use pickup and seduction to trick women into having sex with us because women are so hard to deal with. That's also an absence of responsibility or victimhood. It's this kind of 
use manipulation to counter manipulation. It's again trying to be a model of masculinity designed by someone else. I've got to try and be something that women find attractive instead of I'm going to be myself and see what happens. So I won't go too deeply into that. I'm in the middle of creating a huge piece of content reviewing red pill, MGTOW, and cells, the whole manosphere movement. Um, but for now, I'd say the key thing that I got from my research is an absence of responsibility for designing masculinity for yourself. So I hope that answers that question. Uh, curiosity. We must explore how to have integrity rather than how to please others. You know, you're going out there trying to figure out how others will, you know, a model of masculinity that others will approve of instead of trying to find one that you approve of. You know, and once you do that, it becomes so much simpler. Like, who do you admire and why do you admire them? Not for what they have, but for the way they behave. You know, who do you look up to as a role model of, of somebody living with integrity? And, and ask yourself, what does that mean for you? What would you need to do to live more by that modeling? And not do it, you know, I really recommend you look for people who not only you admire, but they have a huge following of haters. You know, like uh, one, of my, one of the masculine role models I admire the most is Sam Harris, the neuroscientist because of his rational and dogged determination um, in his cause. You know, I admire someone who, despite getting huge amounts of negative feedback, just continues on regardless because he knows that he's doing what's right for him. You know, rather than somebody who everybody looks up to, um, I, I go for the person who a lot of people look up to, but a lot of people strongly hate because if he's polarizing that strongly, he must have integrity. Not always, but almost definitely. And a key one here is where, you know, a lot of guys complain about how men are blamed in the media and how the media is really harsh on men. Very simple solution. Stop fucking reading the media. Turn off your Facebook feed. Put down the Huffington Post article that you're reading and pick up a book on something that will actually help you define integrity. Pick up a book on philosophy, on Stoicism, Taoism, Buddhism. Whatever you want to explore to get more ideas for, for masculinity for yourself. You know, pick up books on psychology and science and neuroscience. Learn about the brain. Learn about behavior. Learn about humans. You know, read Sapiens by Yuval Harari and decide for yourself what it means to be a man instead of listening to other people's opinions on it. Look at the raw material of what it means to be a human and pick from that what you decide are the best traits rather than going to the media. Fuck Huffington Post, right? Fuck the Guardian. Fuck everybody who's talking about how men are useless. Just stop listening to them and they literally go away. You don't have to pay attention to the media. And most of it's horseshit anyway. Courage. One of the reasons I wanted to do this session is because I, as much as I don't believe men are victims um, outside of their own choices, I have to acknowledge how hard it is when you try to experiment with integrity. Like I'm at a place in my life now where I don't get much backlash for being who I am because my whole world has been changed to be surrounded by people who approve of me as I am and to be naturally repulsive and to keep away the haters. Though I do still get some nasty emails and such. 
comments on the internet. But the key here is understanding for you to explore your own version of masculinity, to, to experiment with acts of integrity and see what happens, there's going to be reactions. There's no safe uh, laboratory to, to do this in. You're going to have to face some backlash. You're going to have to take some risks and something's going to go wrong. As long as you take care while you're taking the actions and as long as you respond um, quickly to any negative backlash, you'll be fine, but there will be a transition period where you're going to get some bad reactions. I don't want to play this down. My, my development from, you know, if we take from the end of my pickup phase, which was around the age 25, 26, to when I finally decided, you know, I really like who I am, that was like seven years. And there was a lot of backlash in that seven years. I lost friends. I had uh, women um, yell at me for things that I said. Uh, I had trouble in my work. I had a lot of backlash to me being more myself. And that's just the price we've got to pay. Uh, that, that's it. There's, there's no other reality to live in. There's no alternative universe where somebody's going to be like, you know what, no matter what you try, we're always going to pat you on the back for it. It's just not that way. But the backlash isn't as bad as you think it is. You stop listening to media and you'll realize you're not actually experiencing much backlash. Media amplifies it. Like, oh no, another guy got taken to court for expressing sexual attraction. Well, when you don't read that, you'll realize it doesn't actually happen. Not very often. Um, but there will be some, and that's just the price you have to pay. Henry says, I'm still confused sometimes by the difference between pushing people away with integrity and pushing people away by ego. Well, that's fine to be confused about that. Part of the journey is trying to solve that issue or trying to understand what, which is the difference. You're allowed to still be confused about that. You may be confused about it in some aspects for the rest of your life. Masculinity isn't a final answer. It isn't like, ah, oh, this is what it means to be a man. Case closed. It's an ongoing discussion with the world. It's an ongoing experiment. And there will be ongoing confusion around that. You know? Um, but the key here is about intention. Why do you push someone away? If you were actually trying to push them away, um, is it because they're a bad fit for you? So when you push someone away with integrity, the way I look at it is my intention was to be honest. If that pushes someone away, then it wasn't ego. It was just my intention to express myself honestly. Um, when I push someone away with ego, um, I might be lacking respect or acceptance, which we'll talk about in a second. Key is, the only time I'm trying to push someone away is because they're crossing my boundaries. If I'm trying to push someone away and they're not crossing my boundaries, then what am I really doing? Because it's not honesty and it's not respect. But yeah, be confused about it until you figure it out. Keep trying to be honest. Keep trying to be respectful until you find the balance. Which brings us to honesty. Too many people out there are trying to express what they're supposed to want as a man rather than what they actually want. And they're trying to express what they're supposed to feel as a man, the James Bond thing, rather than what they actually feel. Just then, you know, Henry expressed confusion. That's fine. You're allowed to be confused. It's a natural human emotion that will occur for the rest of your life. It would be weird if you didn't have it. It would probably mean you're like 
Trump-like in your level of certainty, which is a dangerous thing to be. Express what you want, what you feel, what you like, what you dislike. That will define your masculinity. As you go, you know what, I like that, I don't like that. I stand for this and I stand against that. You know, um, I want this, but I don't want that. This is kind of just constantly actually expressing what you want rather than the, I think I should say this, I think I should want that, and I think I should belong to this group, you know. A key element of developing masculinity is acceptance. You have to let go of people liking who you really are in order for you to find the people who do. Especially current friends and women that you're interested in and so on, they may not like you being more honest and courageous. They may not like you taking responsibility and designing your own masculinity. My friends did make fun of me when I started doing salsa dancing. My absolute nightmare about their reaction came absolutely true. They did exactly what I worried that they would do. And yet some of them are still my friends and some of them aren't. And the ones who aren't, I don't miss. The ones who are, they might still rib me and banter occasionally, but they accept me as a, as a guy who likes dancing. So I had to be willing for people to hate me, you know, and that's the thing that's, you know, when I look at uh, incels and MGTOW and all that, one of the things they're lacking is a willingness to be hated. You know, they're still trying to be liked and that's what keeps them stuck in the victim mindset. Acceptance is about going, you know what, the real me might not be very acceptable. It only has to be acceptable by me, not by other people. And respect. Respect is about setting boundaries. You might have people shame you for doing something you know is the right thing. Put up a boundary when they do that. Just because they have an opinion doesn't mean they're right. In fact, they're almost definitely wrong if they're telling you how you should be. Now, it doesn't mean that if someone has a negative reaction that it's always unhelpful feedback. You'll be able to calibrate your values by getting feedback from others. You know, I learned that there's a big difference between going up to a woman on the street and saying, hey, I found you very attractive versus, hey, I like your ass, you know? And actually that the first version, not only was it more respectful, but it was more honest. I found her attractive. I don't know about if I like her ass or not, you know? Um, but if someone came up to, you know, someone later came up to me and said, you know, you can't go and talk to a woman in the street. I say, actually, I can. Shut up. I'm going to. It's happening. I don't care what you read on Facebook, shut up. But at the same time, I have to understand that what others want to be is up to them. I can't shame and pressure them to conform with me. I might be able to tell someone, look, me going up and meeting strangers in the street is how I like to socialize at the moment. If you've got a problem with that, too bad. But I'm not going to convince them to agree with me, and I'm not going to try and get them to approach people with me either. I'm going to do my thing, and you do your thing. Respect is live and let live. You practice what it means to be a man for yourself. And if someone tells you you're wrong, tell them to go fuck themselves in whatever words you want to use. But don't try and tell them how to be a man either. Nice guys are notorious for this. Not only do nice guys struggle with living with genuine masculinity, but they spend a lot of time telling other people what a man should be. Or telling other people how they should act. Stop doing that as well. That's not respectful. I'm, I'm, I'm very confident just from my own experience and working with clients that if someone was to take this valued approach to the problems of confusion around masculinity, that confusion would not only eventually go away, but all the internal problems um, that we talked about before 
that's kind of stuck in a rock in a hard place, shame and anxiety and confusion, not good enough story, that all goes away when you start living by these values. You don't need someone else to tell you how to be a man. You need to figure it out for yourself. And once you do, you need to live by it consistently, even if it upsets people. All right. Let me just check uh, how we're doing for time here. Oh, we might not be able to get them all in. Let's move on now to the difficulty with relationships and connections, the number two issue for men these days. And for you guys on the call, feel free to jump in with comments or questions at any time. Um, but this is taking a bit longer than I thought, so I might not get through it all today, and that's okay. Male friendships. One of the reasons that uh, Brojo's been created is because, you know, Mike and I, when we first started looking at Brojo, we, st we slowly came to this realization that guys have a lot of problems with making friends. And guys seem to fall into one of two general categories. Either they are stuck in superficial friendships that have been kind of served to them, like guys they went to school with, or guys that they work with, or guys they're on the sports team with. And these friendships are not intimate or deep. And they just kind of put up with it because that's what they've got. And the second type of guy is a guy who basically has no friends, or he's only friends with women. So... What we found is that guys really struggle to connect deeply with each other. And I think there's a lot of reasons for this. First and foremost, we were never taught to do it. It depends very strongly on which culture you come from. For example, if you're from Brazil uh, and you're raised in a sort of generally healthy environment in Brazil, you would have been taught to be very touchy with men, to talk to them intimately, to dance with them. It's a completely different environment to New Zealand where looking a guy in the eyes is only done when you want to fight him, you know? So we've got our fathers, they're all raised by, um, you know, nice guy syndrome and feminism. They don't know how to make friends with other guys, so they didn't have anything to teach us. We're all going to school together, nobody's teaching anybody anything. And then with the globalization of the world these days, with people moving countries and cities all the time, a lot of guys are floating around with no friends and no idea how to make friends or they're in a friend circle that doesn't suit them very well, but they don't know what to do about it. Guys are uh, quite often trained or conditioned to make friends shoulder to shoulder. And this actually comes, uh, this is covered a lot in evolutionary psychology. If you go back many, you know, tens of thousands of years, men hunted together. And what that meant was, you were shoulder to shoulder. You didn't look each other in the eyes. You looked ahead, and what you were looking at ahead was your challenge, your competition, or your enemy. So the only time you were looking at something in the eyes, it was either the prey that you were hunting or it was an enemy tribe. Your friends were next to you, and you did activities together, and we see this in sports teams. You notice how sports, often designed by men, all naturally go in this direction where one team's going one way, another team's going the other way. They're shoulder to shoulder going towards the enemy. Soccer, rugby, American football, hockey, tennis, there's all this, you're facing your enemy um, nature to sports. And this is how male friendships are often created. We do stuff with another guy rather than connect intimately with him. It's a shared experience rather than sharing yourself. So intimate connection is shunned it's just a person to do activities with. 
You know, I remember I had uh, my so-called best friend in high school. I sat next to him and we'd make fun of all the other kids and we'd throw pieces of paper at them and stuff. And we'd go to parties together and stuff, but we never sat down and have a chat. And I remember one time I, you know, years later when I was kind of polarizing my friend circle, I looked at him and realized, fuck, I don't really know him at all. I've been best friends with him for like a decade. And I don't actually know him because I've just done a lot of stuff with him, but we've never actually connected. And he's no longer a friend of mine, not by like any sort of negative uh, kind of feeling towards him, but just he was always a stranger to me and I never realized it. Henry says, I find banter and humorous. Uh, I find banter and humorous with people get me easier to create deep connection polarized people. Okay, I think you're saying I find being ban you know, bantering and being humorous with people makes it easier for you to create deep connections and polarize people eventually. <sighs> what I'd say is if that works for you, great. But in my opinion, what I've found is it slows down connection. And what I suggest is that perhaps deeper connection would happen quicker without this. There's nothing wrong with banter and humor unless it's preventing a connection from happening. And a lot of male friendships are only banter and humor. You know, I worked in a lot of trades um, and I remember particularly when I was in landscaping that there was no meaningful conversations ever. There was just teasing and joking and talking about sex and nothing really deep and we we hid behind our humor you know there's a big difference to like i can banter and have humor with my girlfriend now but it's very deep it comes from like long-standing in jokes and so on as opposed to the banter and humor i might use with a new male that i feel uncomfortable with where we use it as a wall to protect ourselves so it really depends on whether or not you're using it to hide vulnerability and delay a connection or if it's actually part of forming a connection a lot of men are uncomfortable with touch and vulnerability. You know, the, the lack of touch in male lives has actually been covered in a few interesting documentaries. And uh, there's, there's one called The Mask We Live In about how young boys are raised and there's a whole section on uh, in America and there's a whole section around this problem with touch. You know, I remember when I was younger, touching other guys only happened in sports and fighting. You only touched men that you were trying to harm. And so touching with men um, became a thing fraught with anxiety for me, you know, and like me and my friend, if we were walking along and accidentally our hands brushed against each other, we'd joke about how gay that was and so on. Whereas, you know, again, if I'd been in a different culture, you know, I've seen like uh, in India, men hold hands. You know, to me, that's bizarre. It would never happen in my life. To this day, I'd still be very uncomfortable with that. Um, but in India, because of the cultural differences for them, it's fine. It's totally natural. And there's all sorts of scientific evidence to show that touch is absolutely critical in, in social connection and that somebody who lacks it um, suffers severely. And we can even see this in, in sudden inf infant death syndrome. There's children that will die without touch when they're first born, even if they get all the basic survival needs met. Without touch, they die. So in total, the male friendships problem is we come to see other males as competition rather than collaboration. There are one of the reasons for the formation of Brojo and other men's groups around the world is to show that actually 
men can be on your side. They're not a constant source of competition. Like when I was uh, in my teen years, especially, my mates were all my friends, but if there was a pretty girl at the party, it was dog-eat-dog. We didn't support each other. We fought against each other. I can remember many times I'd be talking with a girl and getting along with her, and one of my so-called best friends would come along and interfere. You know, we hadn't been taught to collaborate. We'd always been taught to compete. And it created a lot of bitterness and resentment between us. You know, later on in life, I met groups of men who, when they went out to partying or whatever, if they were to meet a woman, they would help each other. You know, they say, look, you know, Jim's doing, you know, getting along well with that girl. Let's go by and talk him up a bit. And, you know, let's uh, stop anybody else from interfering. And they would win for each other. And uh, there was a concept that was brand new to me, this idea we'll actually support each other rather than fighting over the scraps, you know. Abusive relationships. Men are both the perpetrators of uh, violence and victims of it. So I, I've worked with domestic violence extensively. It's one of the few areas that I consider myself to have expertise in. And I can say without a doubt that most of domestic violence happens because the man has shame around the emotion of anger. And most anger management programs that are successful help a man to become okay with anger. It's not anger that's the problem or masculinity is the problem. It's the shame around it. They build up anger and they explode. And we're victims, but we're too ashamed to speak up. A lot of guys get violently hurt or otherwise abused by their partners, females. And of course, because of the whole macho thing, we can't say, yes, my girlfriend beat me up because we'll get too much shame for it. So we go around being abused and taking a lot of really poor behavior because we think we're a failure just because this behavior is occurring. I find a lot of guys I work with, they seem to have absolutely zero training in how to manage manipulation and bullying, how to figure out when somebody is toxic and needs to be cut out of your life. They're kind of left to figure it out alone, or as I put here, given terrible advice, like just walk away. You just walk away from a psychopathic bully and they will chase you. It's awful advice. But, you know, I remember doing, I did some extensive managing manipulation training in corrections. And the whole time I was doing the course, I was just like, why wasn't I taught this when I was a kid? It's not that complicated. You know, if someone's invalidating me and I'm feeling guilt when they speak, that's them tricking me. I need to get away from that person. You know, some really basic stuff that anybody can be taught but we end up becoming bullying victims or bullies ourselves because we don't understand manipulation and control. Um, so we end up being in an abusive relationship that often both ways, most of the guys I work with where the relationship's abusive, not just violent, but manipulative or emotionally abusive, as uh, both doing it to each other. One's usually at the aggressor at a time, but they're both equally fucked up. And that's one of the things you'll see in domestic violence relationships it's not like this Jake the Must thing where this poor woman's getting beaten shitless um, by some psycho dude. Most of the time, it's two people who are severely incompatible, severely unable to express anger in a healthy way, and they both explode. It's just the guy tends to turn to violence, where the woman's more likely to use like cutting remarks and emotional abuse. We're living in the age also of online bullying and trolling. It's very hard to be vulnerable online because there's no empathy. It's like Louis C.K. was talking about kids used to be mean to each other face to face. And if that hurt their feelings, they'd stop doing it. These days, people are learning how to be mean to each other 
uh, at a distance so they don't feel any empathy when the other person's hurt. And people are becoming narcissistic and abusive because of this. We're also getting abusive relationships in a group setting. You know, we're, we're constantly afraid of ostracism as men. We always want to fit in. And so we will put up with abusive relationships in order to be inside a group. We'll, we'll put up with a group of friends who treats us badly or workmates that treat us badly because we want to stay in the group. Um, and, you know, oh God, I just see this so often. It's amazing how many guys I've spoken to a brojo who say, you know, I've got this best friend, but he's actually really awful to me. But if I don't have him, I don't have anybody. I don't have parties to go to. I don't have a group of friends. So we'd prefer to be abused than to be alone. And of course, this is a cycle that we get into. The more you have confidence issues, the more attractive you are to psychopaths and users and toxic people. And so you start to surround yourself with them and they, of course, bring your confidence even lower and you get stuck in this loop. You know, I saw this in incels and MGTOW and a lot of those groups talking about how they'd all been like badly treated by women as if all women treat men badly. Saying, no, women who are attracted to guys like you treat men badly. And that's the only woman you're going to meet with the way that you are. So if you've been in like series of abusive relationships, you know, it seems like every woman you meet or every male friend you meet treats you badly. It's not because all people are abusive. It's because the way you are is allowing them into your life and attracting them to you. And it's you that needs to be worked on, not them. Another one of the main problems that obviously we try to address in Brojo is that, like I said before, we're just not taught how to be social. It's assumed that we'll just pick it up. I mean, who here had a father sit them down and go, okay, this is how you make a new friend. This is how you introduce yourself to people. And, you know, this is how you tell a girl you like her. That's a rare experience for a man. Most guys are like, well, you're on your own because I don't know that shit either, you know? Our fathers were absent or unskilled themselves, and we had to figure it out by ourselves. Combine this with the internet age, and guys are losing all opportunity to practice social skills because they're hiding behind online text communication. You know, we've got apps for dating now. We've got messaging services for communication. We don't even do phone calls anymore. You know, when I was younger, I'm glad I'm the age I am now because at least I had a taste of phone calls and stuff when I was in high school. We didn't have, you know, reliable internet. It wasn't worth using. And um, text messaging was too expensive. So if I wanted to talk to a girl, I had to call her house. You know, <laughs> I'd, have to, I'd have to, like, talk to her parents before I talked to her. You know, if her parents answered the phone, I remember, like, oh, God, I'm talking to, like, Mr. What's-His-Face. Uh, can I, is your daughter in? You know, he's like, who are you? I had to go through all of that. That was all valuable skill training for me. And if I, you know, if I liked a group of people at high school, I had to go up to that group face to face and, and talk to them and use my hands and use my words. I didn't have time to think through what I was going to say like you do with a text message. I couldn't write it out perfect. I just had to speak naturally and, and honestly to some extent. And I developed social skills. You get the same sort of social skills if you become a salesman, you know, if you're a car salesman or if you work in a bar and you're forced to talk to people face to face. But we're living in an age where people have lost all of this. They're hiding their, their only communication is via, you know, um, via the virtual world. 
and they don't realize how costly this is, how much non-verbals and spontaneous in-person conversation and the value of that is being lost. Oops. Just comes up. Henry says, I have a friend from pickup and I was afraid of losing him as my wingman, but we often fight to compete. Well, yeah, great example. I mean, if you can't call someone your wingman if he's your competition, you know. Um, and you can't call someone a friend if he tries to take away things from you, you know. Um, but that's that's often, like a lot of guys these days, like that's, that's all that seems to be available. It's like I have to accept this as a friend. He's the only guy who will go out with me or whatever. Uh, we'll talk about this soon, but getting down to zero is an important factor of building a social circle. You first have to get rid of the weeds before you build a garden. Um, Tinder and, and apps like this have changed the dating world completely. You know, instead of trying to go up and meet someone and get to know them, we just look at their picture and go, yes, I'd like to put my penis in that. And that's the beginning of the conversation. That's fucked. No wonder it's not working. Tinder to relationship ratio is very fucking small, you know. Um, and people just aren't going out to meet people. They're not going out and trying new hobbies. They're not going to social events. You know, when people go to a concert these days, they don't try to meet new people. They just stick with their little in-group because they're so socially anxious. You know, socializing has become very outcome-focused, very high pressure. When you go out socializing these days, you have to get something. It didn't used to be like that. People used to go out to a dance disco just to dance. These days, people go to a nightclub, it's for like very specific outcomes they're trying to get. Nobody goes out just to dance, you know. It's become very high pressure. You know, dates and now make or break rather than, oh, let's see what this person is like. And within all of this, of course, is nice guy syndrome. When nobody's teaching you how to socialize, your default is to try and please and fit in. You know, nobody taught me that I was allowed to polarize people. Nobody taught me I was allowed to have confrontations. So I figured, well, I'll just do what gets a positive reaction. It was a disastrous uh, assumption to make that getting a positive reaction meant I was doing the right thing. But that's how I developed my initial social skills. You know, up until about the age of 24, 25, I thought, you know, every time I do something that someone likes, I'm doing the right thing. And that was the basis for my, for my social interactions. These days, I'm like, how do I express myself as articulately and confidently as possible? And that's my new basis for developing social skills. But it's a completely different methodology. And I'm going to call out what I think is the number one biggest problem for men. They're trying to get laid. I don't know why we're so obsessed with sex, you know, but we are. And the funny thing is, is once you actually get a lot of sex, you realize there's this kind of something missing. You're like, mm, this is fun and all, but it's not that awesome. You know, I, I, when I finally sort of overcame my, my so-called incel issues, when I started having more regular and frequent sex and felt like I had options and power in the situation, I came to realize that like sometimes sex isn't that great. It's not necessarily much better than driving a fast car or um, going to a hobby or anything. It's not like this apex of, of civilization that's like better than everything idea. You know, there's often a, a joke if something's really awesome, you say, oh, it's better than sex. Well, actually, a lot of things are better than sex, you know. 
especially meaningless sex is just anxiety ridden and performance pressure and you're just trying to get laid so you can tell your friends that you're getting sex. That kind of sex is fucking awful, you know. Sex with someone that you're well connected to can be one of the most amazing experiences you'll ever have. But in order for that to happen, you need to be focused on connection, not sex. And this applies to friendships as well. Quite often guys are ignoring male friendships because there's no sex down that path. And like, why would I talk to a dude? I can't fuck him. What's the point? And this is the mindset that guys are bringing into socializing. Like, is this going to get me laid or not? And if not, they pass up on it. You know, I used to remember I wouldn't speak to the girls that were older than like 40 for this reason. And yet in the last few years, some of the most amazing experiences I've had in connection have been speaking to older, wiser people. I didn't have to fuck them for it to be worthwhile, you know? So there's lots of social skills. Basically, we just don't know how to talk to people. Um, and of course, social anxiety. So I've already touched on pieces of this, but this pressure, just constant pressure. A lot of people feel like socializing is a chore. For them, going to a new meetup is like a panic attack. You know, it's just, there's just such high stakes. We need to perform and score and win and be popular. Be you know, it's basically fame watered down to different levels. We're all trying to be powerful and popular. And yet we often don't stop and check in why. Why do we care so much about that? Why can't we just connect with someone? We've become terrified of rejection. You know, it used to be that asking girls out was, you know, something that you just guys just did and there was always a failure rate to it. It was just the kind of one of the things. You talk to guys our father's age or whatever, go back down the line, you, you courted a woman and she either said yes or no and that was like, that was just part of living. These days, you just feel it's like avoided at all costs, as if somehow someone saying no to you is attached to your self-worth. And that's what it is for guys. That's why we have so much social anxiety is because other people have so much control over whether or not we like ourselves. You know, we've given them that control by being attached to outcomes. So we end up being very false. In order to hide this anxiety, we get into people-pleasing safe behaviors, these rejection uh, prevention behaviors. We present a false front that keeps us safe. And we tolerate a lot of bad fit connections. We're trying to do everything we can to avoid in the moment loneliness. You know, we have a massive fear of confrontation because that will lead to ostracism and loneliness. So we're trying to keep the group harmonious. And all the things required for a real connection, honesty, vulnerability, respect, all of these are being put aside to protect the outcomes. So Henry says, I used to feel turning up at a social gathering alone is a shameful thing because mystery method says so. That's why he creates his hired guns to him. Yeah, the idea that you can't show up to something by yourself and that's somehow wrong is bizarre because you showed up to this world by yourself. Um, but yeah, that's a great example. If you're getting into pickup or something like that, you'll be told that you being alone is a bad thing when there's actually no real evidence to support that claim. You being alone is fine. In fact, if you're not okay being alone, your first mission should be working on figuring out how to be okay being alone. Once you're okay being alone, socializing pressure goes way down. Then you can go to something and you never have to do anything beyond be there. So what are the internal problems that come from all this lack of social skills and development and 
in relationships. While well, a growing sense of loneliness and isolation, so many people I speak to feel like they're the only one. They don't get a sense of connection or empathy. A lot of people, like especially with nice guy syndrome and the not good enough story, think of themselves as some kind of freak alien, different from all the rest. And the only way you can feel like that is when you're not connecting with other people. One of the things that helped me with my connections was uh, working at Department of Correction that I got to know other people and the problems they have and I realized, shit, we've all got problems. And my loneliness really went away with that realization. But if you're not connecting with people face to face and having bold, uh, vulnerable conversations, you won't come to the realization that other people suffer the same as you and that we're all just humans. And because of that, you'll start to feel like you're alone and weird and different. And of course, because you don't want this and yet it seems to keep happening, the rage builds. We get bitter. There's a sense of unfairness as things go wrong time and time again. And, and we feel that this is somehow beyond our control. And because it's beyond our control, we get hopeless. You know, this hopelessness increases as time goes on. You know, men going their own way is a great example. of You know, a group has just started to give up. They've, they've, they've felt nothing works. Um, and they don't see the irony in that statement. The very fact that you want something to work is your problem. You know, we get needy, we get desperate, which of course only pushes people away even further and seeps into our behavior and makes it very uh, unattractive and repulsive. And all of it comes from this obsession we have with getting something, getting laid, getting friends, getting a relationship, getting popular. We're obsessed with getting that stuff without ever questioning whether or not getting it is even that rewarding. And because we're obsessed with that, there's no time, energy, courage given to actually connecting with people. We're just trying to get them, collecting them like a psychopath collects trophies, rather than going, who is this person? Let's get to know them and let's let them get to know me just right here and right now. Yeah, seems like Henry's getting some memories around this, uh, quite sad. And yeah, you know, this, this page that I've got up at the moment, um, this was me at the peak of like what was my, the worst time for me, when I just felt completely isolated, like I was this, I imagine like a piece of wood floating in the ocean and with no other pieces of wood. You know, this kind of idea that there was just nothing, no one else like me, uh, no one who understood what it was like to be me and nobody that I understood. Everybody was this mystery to me. You know, it was at this moment in time, like this, what I've got up on the screen was kind of this point of crisis for me that all finally came uh, together or all started to heal once I finally took responsibility for being more honest. Which brings us to the solutions. Again, I think this is all we'll have time for today. I'm going to leave the third issue to another time. We'll finish with this one today. The solution here, according to the Brojo values, first is responsibility, which is this green light syndrome issue. You will learn how to socialize, to interact with people charismatically, to create deep connections. If you get your ass out there and practice, 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 practice. 
you just go out there and face rejection and awkward situations and show up to events alone and all those things you need to do and just meet people face to face and talk to them until you can't handle it anymore and then go out the next day and do it some more and keep doing that until all the mysteries of socializing are revealed to you. Obviously, getting coaching and support and going through programs might help, but doing it is the key and no one else can do it for you. You must be the one to lead and initiate. A lot of guys get bitter, bitter and resentful, like why do men have to lead? It's not that men have to lead, you have to lead. If you don't lead, you'll get served. And what I mean by this is if I don't go and make myself dinner, I'm going to have to eat whatever dinner is brought to me. And if I don't like that dinner, it's too bad. But I can't complain about it because I didn't cook. If your social circle sucks and you're not leading and initiating, then you can't complain about it because you've just sat there and been served a social circle. You've allowed your victim mindset to create one for you, which is just being, you know, taking what you can get. If you lead and initiate and you're going, you know what, I'm going to choose who I talk to. I'm going to choose who I don't talk to. And I'm going to go out there and give them a chance to get to know me. If they reject me, so be it, I'll move on to the next person. Then you'll have options, but you've got to take that responsibility. No one is going to create a social circle for you. No one is going to create a relationship for you. Nobody's going to do 100% of the work. And if you don't at least initiate, even if somebody else does half the work, you won't get to choose who that person is. Curiosity. You know, I had a great podcast interview with a guy named Chris Luna, which I'll publish soon. Um, he's like the top dating coach in New York. And one of the great strengths that he has is whenever he has a social problem, rather than going, oh, no, poor me, he goes, well, what do I need to learn? What's missing? If you're not connecting, ask yourself, why not? Rather than like, oh, I've been served a, a dull hand and life's unfair on me, going, what am I missing? What, can I, what do I need to learn? Who can I learn it from? Who can I um, observe? Who does this better than me? You know, curiosity is what saved my life. You know, if we go back to where I was, this sense of loneliness and isolation and rage was solved by me going, well, who doesn't feel that way socializing? And what do they do differently to me? And I don't mean pick up artistry. I mean, the people who have naturally been, um, easy, find social connection easier, you know? Not the people who manufacture it to get outcomes, but the people who really do love people and the people love them back. You know, ironically, I, I got a lot of um, information from a druggie crowd that I hang out with briefly. You know, there's these uh, guys who used to take drugs every weekend and stuff, and that was kind of their main hobby. But what I noticed as I spent time with them is they had really deep and meaningful connections with each other, probably because they spent so much time high together. Um, but I noticed they did things differently to me. For example, they confronted each other rather than just letting little things slide. And they shared emotions which I wasn't doing. There's a lot of things I wasn't doing that they were doing and they had great connections. So I started emulating them. I started being more honest with people and having confrontations, you know? Um, so you need to ask what's missing from your connections that somebody who's doing really well with connections um, has in their life. Courage is a huge aspect to this. You can become a social master without any support at all as long as you've got courage. And what I mean by courage it's just bringing down your protective barriers, going out there, being seen, being vulnerable. Go out there, make mistakes, get rejected, all those things. You don't have to go out and do it in a terrifying manner. Courage doesn't mean exposing yourself to terror. It just means exposing yourself at least a little bit. Not sitting at home wishing you had a friend. 
but going to that next meetup, trying to say hi to someone and seeing how far you can go, you know. And honesty is probably the main thing missing for most people. One thing we're not taught when it's come to social skills, whether you're reading like how to win friends and influence people, or if you go to pick up or whatever else you go to some seminar or you've got some friend in high school who tried to teach you about how to talk to people. Very few of them would have said, be completely honest. And yet what I'm liking right, right now in the sort of men's movement is that finally uh, a lot of dating coaches and a lot of social coaches and other confidence coaches out there have come to the realization of just how powerful honesty is, how real deep connections are not absent of honesty. In fact, they're formed by honesty. This polarization, letting them see who you really are rather than carefully constructing a profile um, that you think they'll like. That's why I hate online dating. It's so impossible to be honest or it's so impossible to trust that other people are being honest because they're showing you this profile, this carefully picked out thing. And you're in an environment where if you don't do that, you'll get dismissed because everybody else is doing that and you'll look you know, like nothing in comparison to them. So I say just avoid. Basically, I think online dating should only be done by somebody who already has very strong social skills and can already meet people without needing online dating. If you're using online dating because you need it, then you're, you're attacking a problem that's way down the line. You need to be attacking your first problem, which is that you need it. So get out there and learn how to socialize face-to-face, learn how to have phone calls, learn how to interact with a wide variety of people while looking at them in the eye. And then once you're really good at that and that's working for you in your dating life and you want to save some time, then you can use online dating. That would be my solution. Acceptance is a huge part of this. One of the reasons you lack social skills is because you just cannot let go of people liking you. Let go of controlling them. Let them see how you are and let them feel whatever they feel in reaction to that. You know, be direct with people so that they can react to you and just let them have that reaction. You don't have to just blast and plow over people. You can show them how you feel about them and then let them react and be compassionate and respectful of that reaction. And the final point I want to make is for nice guys in particular, one of the things most missing from your social world is confrontation. Confrontation does not end connections, it creates them. If a confrontation ends a connection, you never really had a connection anyway. Now, when I say confrontation, I don't mean conflict. I don't mean blowing up at people emotionally. When I say confrontation, I mean letting people know what your boundaries are, what you like and what you dislike, what you want and what you don't want. And even if that ends the friendship, doing it anyway. Allowing people to see who you really are. You know, who you are is defined by your boundaries what you like and dislike, what you'll accept and what you won't accept. That is who you are. So show those boundaries. Let people feel uncomfortable. Let them disagree with you. Let them do whatever they need to do so they know who you really are. All right, we had one last thing to talk about today. Um, Confusion around values, but we just don't have time. Um, So we're going to wrap it up there for today. Let's see what we got. Still got a couple of people on the call. Any final thoughts from you guys um, or questions before we wrap this one up?
You know, he says, how do you differentiate between leading and controlling? The way I see it, I wonder if I can kind of draw this up. Well, put it this way. Here's what I do, the circle here. And here's how they react, the circle over here. Okay. What I do, how they react. Leadership all occurs in the space of what I do. And control occurs in the space of how they react. So what I mean by this is I move from leading to controlling when I try to manage how they react. Leading is the initiating pulse. It's the give. It's like, this is who I am. This is what I want. This is how I feel. Controlling is doing that in a way that tries to restrict the range of their reactions. You know, so if I can just tell you like, you know, I want chicken for dinner. That's leadership. Now, if I don't accept that they want fish for dinner, that would be controlling. If I'm like, okay, well, maybe we can have both chicken and fish or actually, you know what? You want fish more than I want chicken. We'll go with fish today. That's all leadership. Controlling would be something like, oh, looks like the fish has gone off a bit. I guess we'll have to have chicken. I'm now trying to limit their response. I'm, I'm kind of persuading them towards what I want without stating what I want. That's control. You know? Um, control, like leading is sending a girl a text saying, you know, I'd love to see you on Saturday night. You know, I enjoyed meeting you today. Controlling would be sending her another text to try and influence her, to convince her. Controlling would be asking her a question rather than just making a statement. So the difference really between leading and controlling, I've got a whole piece of material which I'll send you on this. Leading is just the give and you let them follow however they want to follow. And you respond to that follow rather than ignoring it and continuing on your like outcome driven path. If their follow goes in a different direction, which is actually their lead, you will then follow their lead. So for example, let's say I'm dancing and I try to make a girl do a move and she misreads me or I mislead it. She does another move. I'm not going to force the original move to happen. I'll just let her do this new one because I don't want to injure her. You know, I just respect her reaction, but I still tried to make a move happen. That was my lead. If I try to force her to keep doing that move, that's control. You know, if I'm having a conversation and I start a topic that I want to talk about, that's leading. If someone then changes that topic, but when they're finished speaking, I drag us back to my original one. That's controlling. Rather than going, oh, the topic's changed. Let's move on. That's leading. You know, yeah, okay, well, based on what you said, I've got this next thing to say. I'll just follow their lead and they can follow my lead back and forth like that. But yeah, controlling is when you want their reaction to be moderated by you. Leading is just your reaction or your action. Does that make sense? This is really that acceptance factor. The responsibility, courage, and honesty, that's a leadership. Like I say what I've got to say. And acceptance is like you do whatever you want in reaction to that. And I'll let you do it. You know? I had a great example of somebody um, from my current nice guy group. And I'm coaching. They say, oh, I've been applying for jobs and I didn't get one. Now I'm really bummed out about it. That's a great example of moving into the controlling space. Leading was applying for the job. Controlling is trying to get the job. And what's really interesting is while they're controlling, they're not leading. So while he's sitting there waiting to hear back from the job, he's not applying for other ones. So leading is once you finish your application for a job, you then go and apply for another one. You basically forget about the job you've applied for. 
you don't even want to hear from them unless you got it because you've already moved on to the next one. You're constantly focused on what you can control. You're constantly focused on your own action. If you ring them back saying, did you get my application? You know, what did you think? That's controlling. You're trying to get the job. If they want you, they'll hire you. If not, fuck them. You know, I hope that makes sense. Oh, I see Henry typing away there, so I'll let you finish up. Now Christian says, what position should I adopt in terms of applying for jobs? How do you show up at interviews without being needy? And really short-term practical advice, make sure you've applied for 20 jobs. Then no one job interview matters that much. And make sure when you're going to a job interview, it is not to try and get the job, it's to see if the job's right for you. That is the ultimate shift. It's the same on a date. If you go trying to get the girl, you won't even pay attention to whether or not you like her. You know, you'll just be so obsessed with trying to get her. But if you go and go, let's see if actually we're a good fit. Because I don't even want this to go further if we're not. Uh, the date changes flavor completely. And the same job interview, like my whole career changed when I started treating job interviews as me interviewing them. Like I'll answer their questions, but they've got to answer mine too because I'm trying to figure out if we're a good fit. And I'd ask them kind of bold questions. You know, I'd be like, I, I don't like being micromanaged. What's the management like in this team? It's kind of thing where like, this will be a deal breaker for me. That's the answer to this question possibly. Where I'd be actually willing to end a job interview saying, you know what, based on what we've talked about today, I don't think this is going to be a good fit for me. Even if they want to hire me, even if it's a high paying job. To value my integrity over their approval. Same applies for dates and everything like that. But yeah, quantity can really help. One date doesn't matter if you've met, you know, 40 girls this month and you're going to ask out another 40 next month. Not because it's about trying to rack up numbers, but because you're just coming from a position where no one person is that important. No one job is that important. You don't need to get this outcome because you're just focused on the process. Henry asks, is trying to give someone help without them asking also a form of controlling? Short answer, yes. Long answer, if you want to make sure it's not, ask their permission. You know, it's a great way to let go of control is to ask permission. You know, um, and, and you can do this in so many different ways. You can say, look, I've got this burning piece of advice I want to give you, but I don't want to be controlling. Do you want help with this or you want to do it on your own? That way, if they say no and you stop speaking, you're not being controlling. You just lead them. You're leading them towards support, but you're not making them drink. If you're like, what you should do is blah, blah, blah. What you're really saying is, I want you to behave in a way that I feel comfortable with. And that's controlling. You know? Um, it can even come to being honest, expressing attraction, things like that. You'd be like, look, there's something I really want to tell you, but it might make you uncomfortable. Do you mind if I say it, or is this not a good time? And you let them say no if they want to say no. Right? He said, I used to, and ended up being friends with the girls. Same for me. I used to become girls' counselor, their psychiatrist. You know, I'm just forcing. Anytime somebody brought a problem to me, I solved it. And it's so funny. Once I started going, wow, that sounds like a real issue. I hope you do well with that. And still trying to solve it for them. For some reason, that made me more attractive. And to this day, I don't quite know how to answer, you know, why that happens. But basically, you become a role in somebody's life. If you're the guy who gives advice you're not going to likely to be the guy that they want to have sex with as well. 
or the guy that they want as their boyfriend. I have a mixture, like with my girlfriend, she's having a problem. I'm like, what kind of support do you want with this? I check in with her before I continue. She, she's learned, because we've had conversations about this, she learned the difference to how I'll react if she says, I just want someone to listen to me, or I want your opinion, or she'll even say, I want you to tell me what to do. And there's a time and place for each of those pieces of support, but I don't, I try my best, I stumble and fail. Try my best not to do it without permission. And I catch myself when I am doing it without permission. And you can too, you'd be like, you know, what you should do is blah, 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 and then go, wait, the fuck am I telling you how to live your life? You know what, do whatever you want. That was just me being controlling. It's a very raw and vulnerable thing to tell somebody. Um, and especially when you say something, you know what, I'm just judging you right now. You live your life, don't listen to me. They might say something like, no, 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 continue. I want to hear what you have to say. Or they might appreciate that, hey, this person's not going to pressure me to be the way they want me to be. You know, that if he catches himself, he'll take responsibility for that and back off. And in my personal view, just opinion, that's masculinity. It's leading, but not domination. Domination is leading without permission. You know, I lead, I'm like, look, this is what I think should happen, but you don't have to follow me. And, and sometimes I'll be quite clear, like, there'll be times, say, my girlfriend brings a problem to me, and I'll say, what sort of support you want? She goes, oh, I want you just to listen. I'm like, look, honestly, I don't want to listen to this. This is a girl conversation. You know, you want to bitch about that chick at work who I, who I don't know and about her partner who I know even less. And I don't care, and this is not going to lead to any solution. I don't want to have this conversation. This is a boring conversation for me. You have girlfriends who love to have this conversation while they bitch out about their person at work. So go talk to them about it. When you come to me, talk to me about something that I'm actually going to care about, and then you've got my full attention. And setting those kind of boundaries, I used to think that would be a deal breaker for women. But it's not. They're like, okay, I've got a man. I've got a guy who's going to be honest. I can trust that guy. I can rely on that guy. Not the kind of trust and reliability you have with a nice guy, like, yeah, he'll do what I want. But more like, yeah, this guy's going to man up. He's going to be consistent in his behavior. I'll know how to predict what he's going to do. I won't have to worry what's going to happen. I'll know that if someone gets in our way, he's going to step up because he steps up to me. You know, And it took me a long time to realize not only how attractive that was, but how much more authentic that is for me to do. It's more real of me to say that than it is to pretend I want to help with something I don't care about, you know. All right, lads, I've got to wrap it up there. Um, Henry, Chris, thank you guys so much for being on the call and sharing your questions. We may have to continue this series because there's so much more to talk about, the struggles of being a guy. But I really want to emphasize in my own life, the biggest, really the biggest change that ever occurred was when I stopped trying to look for who to blame for the problems that I was facing. And I just started asking myself, well, what am I going to do about it? What can I do about it? And focused all my energy on answering that question. Um, and like Henry, you raised the incel issue. MGTOW, all these groups of guys who have been beaten down by the hardships of being a man. I think there's two key things that they're doing wrong. One is they're not going, well, what am I going to do about it? And two is they're going, oh, this is unfair doesn't matter if it's unfair. It is what it is. You know, you think the guys in the Republic of Congo, war-torn, being raped all the time, you think they're fair? No. But they can still do what they can about it. I don't feel sorry for them, necessarily. I'm fuck being them, but 
the point being is like, yeah, life sucks. It does. I don't know what alternative universe anyone's been to to have something to compare that with, but that's just the hand we've been dealt. It's like the payment for being alive, the payment for being a man, all the good stuff about being a man, and there's plenty of that. The payment is that, you know, the media hates us and shit's hard sometimes when it comes to connecting with people and we're raised in this fucked up culture. Yeah, that's, that's it. That's the hand we've been dealt. So be it. It's not the end of the story. It's the beginning. It's the, the battle. It's the point, you know. Because um, I, I, I get, like, this is what I want to finish with. Sometimes I might seem like I'm dismissive or even derogatory about men complaining about the difficulties of being a man. I want to emphasize that's not the case. I absolutely recognize these difficulties and they are real. But the idea that we're powerless is not real. And that's the bit that I'm dismissive of. That's the thing I disrespect. The idea that we're victims to this is bullshit. We're not victims to anything other than our own decisions and our own reactions. That's the only things that can cause us any suffering. And even if it is true, even if we are victims to this, Sitting around being victims is probably the least enjoyable response. You know, I, I, I mean, for me, I think where, where I'm lucky is that I worked in Department of Corrections and I got to spend some time in prisons. You want to know what it's like to have no options, no freedom? Go to a fucking prison. Because I tell you what, being a man in the outside world is still a fuckload better than being a man inside. I'm telling you. I think it's hard enough to get women when they're available. Try getting them when they're not. And this idea that, like, there was these guys in prison, the guys in prison who made the most of their time there and ended up being better men for the experience weren't the ones going, poor me for being in here. They're the ones who go, okay, based on where I'm at and my limited resources, what's the best I can make of this situation? You know, those guys who lay in their bunk all day crying about how they shouldn't be in there, and there's guys who rushed out into the yard and did their workouts and read books and got their PhD and everything while they were in prison. You know, they were responsible people. They're all in the same prison. Some guys were made a lot out of that situation. Some guys made nothing and got worse. The same for all of the situations we've talked about here today. So you've got poor social skills. So be it. You can crawl up in bed and cry about that. And sometimes you've got to do that. But other times you got to be like, all right, well, today I better go talk to someone then. My social skills suck, then working on my social skills is where it's at. This dream life I have of everybody loving me, well, I'm going to have to put that aside because I've got no social skills. Till the social skills issue is sorted, I can't even think like that. You know, realizing that whatever these problems are, whichever ones from this webinar resonated with you, well, that's your work. That's what you got. That's the hand you've been dealt. Sure, there's other people that weren't out that hand. Boo-hoo for us, lucky them. Doesn't matter because we were, you know. I used to get so resentful about my nice guy syndrome, like oh, all these other guys, they're just so naturally like cocky and confrontational and all well, the women love them. Yeah, great for those guys. Awesome. That wasn't me. I had to deal with what I was and I had to start where I was. You know, we've got this concept on coaching. You've got to meet the client where they are. I might have some ideal or see the potential in someone, but I can't go beyond where they currently are, what they're currently willing to do, what they currently believe in. That's where I have to go and talk to them, you know? 
uh, and you got to treat yourself like that. So I won't go into how a lot of the people you think have it better to you than you actually don't. You know, like there's a few popular people in my high school who committed suicide, for example, showed me quite clearly that my lack of skills wasn't the full picture, that they had problems as well. But the key here is while these problems are real, the media is mean to men and society is fucked up about how it raises guys. There's still no justification for sitting around whining. You know, everybody's got a justification for being a victim. Both genders, all the races, all the age groups, every demographic that you can think of has a reason to be a victim. You know, we're, we're even in an age where finally being a white guy has a reason to be a victim. You know, it's taken a while, but now being a white guy is a bad thing, apparently. We've all got our reasons. But it's what you do about it that matters. It's the only thing that matters. In fact, if you didn't have those problems, you'd have nothing to do. So I hope you guys take that forward somehow. Um, so it's this topic I feel really passionate about, but I, like I said, I don't want to give the impression that I'm cold-hearted about the issues facing men, many of these issues that I'm either going through or have been through myself. But I am somewhat unsympathetic about victimization. You know? If if world's abusing you, it's up to you to do something about it. It's not up to the world to change. Yeah. Henry, Chris, thank you guys uh, for being on the call with me. Appreciate that. And I'll see you both uh, for the next one. Cheers.